Welcome to this week's episode of The Modern Good. I'm your host, Busy Gold. Conscious construction starts right now. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Modern Good. I'm your host, Busy Gold. I'm here with Simon Esler. He's a seasoned actor, writer, filmmaker, and unschooling father, which we talk a lot about on, on the show. Longtime truth teller on a mission to win the ongoing war against free thought and human liberty. With over 15 years of experience creating comedy theater and a background as a former minister, he uplifts hidden truths using laughter and deep insight as weapons. You can find all of Simon's work at simonesler.com, and we'll give you more links to that at the end of the show. So, Simon, welcome to the show. We're very excited to have you on. Thank you kindly. I really am happy to be here. So I've had my eye on your content for quite a while, and I will say I was listening to the Karens with my daughter the other day we were laughing hysterically it's one of those that if you ever get a chance to look at it on Simon's Instagram it's hilarious as you keep watching it I don't know if this has happened to anybody else but there's a couple moments like that in Family Guy where it's so uncomfortable that you like want to click off but you also can't stop laughing and the more uncomfortable you get the more you laugh and then the more you kind of want to cry because it's actually just devastating that this is actually what's unfolding so if you get a chance to check that out my daughter is 12, almost 13. She's got cerebral palsy and she's got the best sense of humor. She was laugh crying every time, like all the different Karen faces would come on. She'd just lose her mind. It was hilarious. <laughs> so I definitely love your comedic take on what's happening right now. I think that's certainly been one of my approaches to help people through this point in time, because if we're going to go into the things that are dark we can't go into that with fear we really have to go into it with a bit of comedy because if you're not of that light-hearted awakened spirit it's gonna pull you down with it and it certainly seems like that's your vibe so that's why i wanted to have you on the show i think sometimes people can be either overly partisan in their thinking or overly dark and fear-based in their thinking so i thought you'd be a really great contrast to that by keeping the mood light So thanks for keeping the mood light. Yeah, my pleasure. I mean, I did it out of absolute (laughs) self-preservation. I feel that. I definitely feel that. (laughs) It was like actually the Karen sketch was something that I made for a comedy special that uh, I created during lockdown. So I made the 60-minute comedy special where I essentially uh, went around Toronto to different areas of Toronto and talked about the history of the New World Order and the occult that's related to different areas of Toronto. And then in between me hosting these different sections of Toronto and the sort of occult and conspiracy culture history, then I would dive into these sketches. And one of them was this Karen sketch because uh, I I actually did have an experience where a whole series of Karens descended upon me online. And I just thought it was (laughs) so dystopian and wild. It was pretty wild. And I love, for those of you that have not yet seen it, He selects a very specific Karen-esque wig, which all the Karens wear. There's different Karens. (laughs) They all have a slightly different personality. But, you know, my husband's from Canada. I've spent a lot of time in Canada. And, you know, I will say the wig you picked is, it's a very Canadian mom do. Like, you basically (laughs) picked the Canadian mom do. I've never seen more women 
with that kind of it's not really it's not a bob it's it's somewhere between like a soccer mom short bowl cut karen bob it's a karen bob but that is the canadian mom hairstyle over 50. yeah i did my wig research i did i poured through many wigs before i was like that is the wig it's right there (laughs) that is hello i'm karen (laughs) yeah you guys have to watch it it's classic um so we're gonna spend today's episode primarily focused on the importance of family what is being done behind the scenes with an attempt to destroy the family and even get you to comply with this willingly because i think a lot of what we explore on the show is not just how these things are happening behind the scenes and you would have no idea that it's happening and we're just trying to kind of pull the curtain on some sort of conspiracy but no you can actually see this evidence in your life in the lives of your friends and family this isn't a conspiracy although Really, I think the word conspiracy, and that's a whole separate thing, has really been twisted because a conspiracy truly just means a small group plotting against the larger group. So if that's what we're talking about, then yes, it is a conspiracy. But I I digress. What we're really looking for here is this isn't just something that's secretive that's happening that we're trying to whisper to you about that you would have no idea it's happening. It's literally blanketed every facet of our society, and you don't have to look far to see it. I can see it in my own life. I can see it in the lives of friends and family. So I think what we're really looking for here is how did they get you programmed or primed to do this willingly? Because a lot of us have actually not just complied or gone along with it. It's actually become who we are and it's changed the way we think about some of these structures. So I think the goal of today's episode is to get you to think about how some of this has changed for you? Has it? Is this how you were parented? Were you raised to believe these things? And are you willing to sit here today and ask yourself some tough questions? Are you willing to sit here today and be open-minded and see that some of the things that you might not believe even exist are actually what's back there? Pulling some little strings, yeah? So why the intent to destroy the family? What is What's the mechanism or what is the goal behind trying to destroy the family? Well, there's two main ways I would talk about that in terms of the sources that I found. So when I was making my superorganism series, I started to go really deep into these documents called the Toronto Protocols. And they outlined two meetings by a group that called themselves the 666. And so they were they were overtly satanists they said they were global financiers and they were essentially outlining warfare operations that they had been waging and that they planned on waging to install a new world order and they state very overtly in their plans that one of the major obstacles to installing a new world order is the traditional family unit so unless they get that out of the way it's not going to work they kind of they talked about it in the same way they talk about nationalism and like national pride that that's a big obstacle so they outline in these documents uh that they needed to specifically target the mom the father the child in certain ways to ensure that the stability of the family fell apart and that the importance of the family fell away in the eyes of society so that they could install this new world world order but the other part of it and one of the things that sort of really woke me up to the the beauty and the importance of the family was that they point out that they're doing this because they want to stop the movement 
of knowledge and wisdom from generation to generation. And that essentially the family is the path by which knowledge comes from the past and moves into the future. And that if the family falls apart, there won't be new knowledge. And then the population will just be at the whims of whatever social engineering is at play at the time of, that they're alive. And so I started to realize that, you know, a big part of this is about the fact that the, the family unit is an ideal form uh, for gathering and passing on knowledge and wisdom uh, and that they saw this before we did, or at least they knew this to such an extent that they were able to develop social engineering campaigns that unfolded over many generations to ensure that there was a certain level of destabilization that would allow for the chaos that availed us to the installation of a new world order. So <clears throat> in your opinion, from your research, I suppose, how long do you think this agenda has been unrolled? So what is the, what kind of timeline are we talking about here? Like 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, a hundred years? Probably, probably all hundreds of, of all years. of human history. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, in these documents, they reference this. They say that they are continuing the work of their ancestors so that this plan to enslave humanity was old and that um, it's actually it's funny because while they are attacking our ability to preserve knowledge and wisdom, they ensure that in their family lines, it's very much intact and that their bloodlines keep their family mission on point. So they have this advantage of making a plan that's a hundred years long and executing it because it gets passed on properly in the way that we actually need to be passing on knowledge and wisdom properly. So they made sure that was intact for them over many, many generations. So it looks to be like hundreds of years. They, they reference, you know, uh, uh, Nazism and the communism uh, that unfolded in Russia. And then they even hearken back further than that, just talking about how successful they were at attacking the family in those past instances and how they wanted to reflect that in the future um, using communism. So, for example, one of the meetings is actually titled The Red Wave. And they're referring to the importation of communist ideals into the West, just the massive wave of communism they plan on importing here. This is one of the things that piqued my interest because when I really started diving deep into these documents, uh, it was at the time of the lockdowns and uh, the amount of communism that was being used to respond to this, you know, uh, this alleged pandemic was, uh, was pretty startling. Uh, you know, we, I, I noticed that we had literally copied the response that was generated in communist China, that Xi Jinping's response was something the West was saying, we'll do this now right away. So when I saw that there was these documents stating that they're, they're going to bring a red wave of communism to the West, and I'm in the midst of sorting out what's going on here and watching all this communism actually arrive, uh, there seemed to be a pretty big alignment. So I think it's very, very old especially because they have preserved lines of knowledge that allow multi-generational social engineering to unfold. Okay, I completely agree. And I think you touched on a couple things that are worth noting. So we talked a little bit about earlier before we even started the show, this idea that 
you know, if, if we're using things like this organization referred to themselves as 666 and we're kind of tying in this idea that perhaps there's a satanic agenda operating in this family that is trying to protect their bloodline and protect whatever the ideals or goals are of that family line. It brings up for a lot of people then, okay, well, I like the idea of saying, even if you don't think Satan is real, these people do. So we have to act in accordance with that, right? So I think as much as some of you feel really turned off at the word satanic or Satan because you're like, oh, whatever. Oh, come on, right? Because in your head, it's like you get some flash of like Son of Sam 70s, right? It's if you just stop and take a beat, I believe that the media has done that very intentionally. So that's the only image that you call up and you don't realize that it is actually deeply and overtly connected to all of Hollywood, all of the fashion industry. You know, okay. on the heels of now Balenciaga Gate, I think maybe people have a little bit more awareness that it is actually overt and in your face. It's not some rogue serial killer that you'll never run into. It's people in all different facets of life, all different levels of life from the impoverished to the most elite to I'm going to just go ahead and say it to some of the pastors at your church, to some of the people in the front row of your church, you wouldn't know because they're so well coordinated because, as Simon mentioned, there's this deep commitment to family, history, tradition. They're really driving some sort of agenda toward a goal. And again, whether you believe in it or not, they are clearly driving it toward some sort of satanic-minded goal. Now, I think this brings up a lot of Christians, I think, tend to be very passive and like, we already won and just kind of do this thing where I think that's part of what has allowed this to happen on this topic of family. Has this been done by Satan himself? I believe yes. But I think this idea that a lot of Christians have become passive or have allowed progressivism to seep into their church because they take on some sort of idea like, oh, well, if we don't stay current with the times, we can't bring people to Jesus. <laughs> whoa, if there was ever an actual covert plan of the enemy, like, hello, that's the plan. So I think we've got all these different things happening where it's like we clearly have these people at all different areas of government, fashion, Hollywood, even your everyday people in your life that you might not have any idea. And they're operating in some sort of very coordinated fashion to fulfill the destiny of their family bloodline. Meanwhile, everybody else is kind of doing their own thing. Like we're, as you said, like we've been distracted or misled or convinced that we need to just kind of be passive and that we've already won. I genuinely believe that for a lot of people that are listening today that might actually be Christians, and I think you've probably seen a lot of this on my teaching on Chainbreaker, this is actually the plan of the enemy. Like we're we're not we're not realizing that we're on a battlefield and that God's given us a very clear battle strategy. And instead we're kind of using the battle strategy of the government, which is meant to make us lose basically so i think this idea is is really important for us to understand that while there's this highly coordinated effort on the side of satanism and whether you believe it or not they sure do otherwise they wouldn't have spent thousands of years trying to drive this goal forward so on the opposite side you know all of us we've got all different beliefs we're from all different religious backgrounds we need to take it upon ourselves to at least understand their battle strategy so we can oppose it, yeah? I mean, do you feel like, do you take that stance, Simon, that we kind of have to figure out the enemy's strategy so that we can 
as a collective stand against it with some sort of organization? That's been a huge theme in my life, frankly. I have studied warfare very deeply for this very reason, because I want the enemy's warfare strategy to inform my point of service to humanity. It, it can actually drive an incredible amount of focus in terms of how you can be of service right now. So first of all, waking up to the fact that you are in a war, <clears throat> but more specifically, you're in, um, from the study of war, you're in what's called fifth generational or fifth generation warfare. So fifth generation warfare is warfare that is uh, designed to manipulate perception and awareness. It is a modern kind of warfare that is designed to hide the fact that there is a war. And it's designed to stop people who are being attacked, not only from knowing they're being attacked, but from waging any kind of response. And so when we look at the fact that we've emerged into fifth generation warfare and that it use, utilizes very subversive propaganda, it utilizes technology in very complicated ways um, to hide the war and to stop us from responding to it, then there's a very uh, important step, I would say, in the collective in being like, whoa, we're in a war zone. Every day I'm in a war zone and I need to act accordingly. And so for me, it's often about figuring out like, what is the axis that I'm occupying right now in terms of war? So when you look at like, you can say that we're in a theater of war and that this war has a number of domains. Okay, there's spiritual warfare, there's cultural warfare, there's psychological warfare, there's information warfare, and they intersect in our lives in a number of different places. And so it is important, I think, to recognize the different axes that are surrounding us uh, so that we can be of service with precision and intention. And so that's been a big thing for me lately is studying their warfare more deeply so that it really calls me to service uh, with intentionality. I love that. And I think that's a really practical step and a lot of people they don't want to do it because it's somehow they trick themselves into believing that they're giving energy to that. It's almost like, well, if I give any energy to that, then I'm just feeding it. No, you're equipping yourself. There's a difference between equipping yourself and actually allowing yourself to get pulled into it. So I would say that some of that is a factor of boundaries. If you are just going to completely lose yourself in that research, as I know many people that have gone down rabbit holes, right? You you can lose yourself if you don't go into that process with a plan, spiritually equipped, being able to protect yourself, know when you've got to pull out and reset and focus on some things that are more light in your life. So do you have something like that that you do that is more of a protocol to not lose yourself and instead kind of go in and out with clean boundaries? And if so, what is that? Absolutely. So I think the, the way that I look at it is, first of all, recognizing that we are social beings to the extent that uh, groupthink is a very, very strong pressure. Uh, and I don't mean that in terms of groupthink group think pulling us into the enemy's uh, warfare campaigns, more in terms of being a part of sort of truther culture or conspiracy culture or just seekers. That's the groupthink that I think can be very dangerous um, because, as you said, there's, there's lots of rabbit holes. There's lots of, you know, places we could dive deep. But to know what is right for us, which rabbit holes are right for us, we have to spend a requisite amount of time in solitude outside of the influence of groupthink and ensuring that we have enough self-knowledge 
so that when we move into the currents of groupthink, we can maintain the level of self-awareness that is required to stop us from being pulled into rabbit holes that have nothing to do with our mission, because there's a unique purpose for each person and you're designed to serve a specific purpose. So it's not just find any and all truth because there's just too much to find right now. It's really about uh, the amount of time on your own that you need to ensure that you have an awareness of the currents of groupthink so that you can watch them in these truth-seeking communities and recognize what is right for you. And I, I say that having experienced, you know, big periods of my life where I got pulled into rabbit holes that eventually I came out of. And I was like, you know what? I did uncover a lot of things that are true, but it didn't serve me. It didn't serve my mission. It didn't leave me with any practical service I can offer humanity. I just uncovered some stuff that was kind of dark and true. And and so I, I had to pivot and reorient myself and my self-awareness to recognize that, you know, I need to be going down the rabbit holes that are going to serve my mission and help me serve my community. So I think the key there is this idea that purpose can somehow be a measuring stick to whether something is productive or not, right? If once you are clear on what your purpose or mission is, you have something to measure it against. Is this actually in pursuit of that goal or is this something that's not actually going to impact either my life in a positive way or a meaningful way or the collective in a meaningful way? So I think that's a really great piece of advice. And I think a lot of people ultimately for that reason, they struggle with finding purpose and mission. And I would say that is another way that the enemy has attacked humanity, right? As they've kind of pushed us into this idea of your career is your purpose, your career is your identity. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself keeps us away from figuring out who we are and what our unique mission template is in this world. So would you say that has that ever happened to you or people that you've known where it's like this idea of career, like what the what the world wants you to do actually gets them stuck in some sort of lack of understanding of what it is that they could be or what their mission could be? Yeah, actually, I did a ton of research on this. I have a series called Worlds Within on Rise TV. And one of the seasons I did was on education, sort of the the hidden purpose of the education system. And, you know, the, the career track orientation that has been stalled in our education system, the idea that you're being placed onto a career track uh, is very, very limiting. Even just the question to children, what are you going to be when you grow up is so limiting and it has nothing to do with the range of experiences that we need as human beings to become fully who, who we are meant to be. Uh, and so I see the, the sort of career track thinking as a very surreptitious kind of social engineering that it, honestly has caused a lot of suffering. Because uh, when you combine that with the pressure to just go to college or university, because that's what people are doing, and you go and you, 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 know, you get into a bunch of debt and you t take on a whole bunch of educational you know, degrees that don't end up meaning anything to you, uh, it, it can really, really take people off their path. And I think um, we need to recognize that when you look at your life, if anyone looks at their life, no one was really on a career track. No one was ever on that. We all wind, like life paths wind. There's a really good book called Range uh, by, I think the author's name is David Epstein. And he talks about this. He talks about how, People that got stuck in the career track orientation, who became 
hyper-specialized individuals who got like the most specialized kind of degrees, they actually found in a lot of studies that they lose intelligence and they get trapped in what's called cognitive entrenchment. And it's this idea that you can become entrenched in so many knowings that you, uh, you lose the amount of intelligence that you need or the kind of intelligence you need to respond to life fluidly and to really solve problems. This is such an issue that corporations are now hiring people outside of fields of specialty to solve problems that their companies are having. So literally if they have like in their chemistry department, they're having like an issue with, you know, product development they can't get, they'll hire someone who has no specialization in chemistry to come in and help that team solve it because they're able to think outside of the hyper-specialized minds that have been tasked with those issues. And that's a good example of cognitive entrenchment. And I really think that that's something that is plaguing our world. I think it's one of the reasons so many experts betrayed us when it came to the whole narrative, uh, you know, whole pandemic narrative. Um, so I think the career track orientation and cognitive entrenchment are two concepts that people should really, really be aware of. And I think it goes back to a quote from Albert Einstein that we've talked about a bunch on this show, which is that a problem cannot be solved in the same state of consciousness as it was created. So effectively, I think that pretty much describes cognitive entrenchment, where yeah. if you're if you're too focused on whatever that area is, you're not able to think in a multi multidisciplinary fashion to find a way out of it. And I think this is one of the things that we talk about a lot on this show is really how much this idea of academia and credentialing has actually blocked us from success in a variety of areas that I really feel like we're in desperate need of. And a lot of what we talk about in the show is the mental health sector in specific. So if you're so programmed and primed to be specialized in what you are being taught and you then regurgitate it and anything that the system is going to stamp or approve moving forward has to still have basis in what you were just taught. So you can't actually come up with something from outside of whatever that approved academic architecture is and have it now be some place that people can continue to move on in their career. Everything has to come back to whatever that stamped foundation is, which is built to fail. If that was working, it would be working. Why do we have to keep, why would we evolve on on top of what's already stamped and sealed for approval? Why would we not evolve by bringing in something completely outside of that knowledge? And I think that's, again, another one of those tentacles, if you will, that's built to keep us stuck. I think anywhere you turn, there ends up being some decrepit, origin of a system that you can tie to some of this agenda, unfortunately. And I know a lot of people don't want to believe that, but I'm telling you right now, if you actually take the blinders off and go do some of this digging with critical thinking, not just because some show told you so, but actually go and piece it all together, unfortunately, you literally always land back at the same like two to three general areas that all seem to intersect. And I won't won't say what those three are right at this moment, although we've certainly talked it on the show. So I think where I want to go with this next is obviously everyone has a different moment of awakening to some of these things. And usually that holds some keys into how you originally started to uncover or explore some of this information. So what was the moment for you that made you realize that something was off or amiss or in need of deeper exploration? Hmm. I had, 
I guess for me, it started off with more extraterrestrial things. Um, some seeds we like, had been... We like aliens on the show. Well, you know, I, I, it's something that's like keeps coming up in my life. And so I've had to respond to it. So uh, when I was very young, uh, I want to say like 11 years old, I was laying in the snow at my cottage in, uh, in Muskoka in Northern Ontario. And uh, this massive purple spiral, like the size of the moon, just opened up in the sky and just started spinning. And it just spun in the sky for like 40 minutes. Now at the time, you know, I didn't have anything in my life to, to, to do anything with it other than just be in awe. I, I had no conspiratorial thoughts. I was just like, that's incredible. And then, and then that was it and I, I moved on. And then years later, uh, I would be up on my cottage again when I was a teenager and I saw, um, crafts of some kind so essentially lights that were moving at the speed of shooting stars but doing 90 degree turns mm -hmm. uh, which i knew to be impossible if we were looking at normal human propulsion that those speeds would break the neck of any human in a normal ship moving at that speed um so i just had some of those early seeds planted for me and then um there was a time when i was in university when for some reason watching the film The Mothman Prophecies just triggered a huge emotional response in me. And so I started digging more deeply into that and into ufology and uh, into the fact that there seems to be uh, an extraterrestrial connection to the human story that is both modern and, and ancient. And uh, so I really got deep into the ufology space. Uh, I ended up having... Uh, after this moment with the Mothman prophecies, I ended up having all these sort of experiences of, I don't know if it was some kind of inner voice that was just guiding me. And I, I can't say I, to this day, I don't know specifically what that was, but it was really, really like, I would, I would wake up in the middle of the night. I would tr be trying to sleep and, and, and this voice would be telling me to get up and just like research the things that have come up for you, the things around uh, you know, non-terrestrial beings and, and crafts. And I, literally it got to the point where I was like, okay, all right, all right, fine. And I did. Um, so I got really deep into the UFO space. And that, I think for me, it crescendoed with having an actual encounter with a being, but it wasn't really what a lot of people describe. Um, at the time, I was doing a meditative session for a client. I had been running a practice doing deep guided meditations for um, for all kinds of people. This person happened to be like a really high level CEO of a, a property development company. He was really stressed. He was really looking to, uh, to, to lower his stress. And so I would go and do these like really deep guided meditations with him. And I was in the session with him, actually in his home. And as I was doing this deep guided meditation with him, uh, a being popped up in the room uh, and just looked at me and I looked at it and it was just, uh, the feeling was like we were just accidentally encountering each other. It was very light, it was very beautiful. There was no message, there was no like, I had been contacted and nothing like that. It was almost as if there are just streams of consciousness that sometimes cross over and it's just 
It's natural in the way that a leaf falls from a tree. It's just, it happens. So after I had that experience, I really felt a calling to, to help people. I guess like love themselves very in a very deep and very clear way because the practice I had been performing during that sec session had to do with emptying myself completely and just opening myself to, to, to love in a very, very sort of basic, very sort of childish way. And uh, it, it made me wonder if, if that was what caused this sort of accidental encounter with this being. Um, but I guess from then on, it's been more about balancing my internal awareness with my point of service in the world. Because at the time I was guiding this meditation, I was looking so deeply into myself that I've always remembered now the physiology of that moment. Like it's in my nervous system. Like I can remember what that felt like and just the harmony of that moment. So, you know, for me, there was that, I guess that sort of narrative really led up to a moment for me where there was a, a manifestation that I guess crystallized and uh, drove me forward. Uh, now, I, I'll say that at this time, I'm really not as deeply into the ufology rabbit holes and research. And that's not where I've landed. Uh, it was just sort of a beginning for me. But that was, you know, one of the, one of the things I ended up stepping away from eventually, because as I said, it just, it became a rabbit hole where I was like, I don't understand how this is helping me serve humanity. I get that there's truth here. I have personally experienced truths and yet I just don't feel that this is part of my mission. And so I moved in a different direction, but I still do very fondly recall that those are my sort of foundations in my awakening. So I think that point of access is shared for a lot of people because I think many of us are programmed to believe that this is a purely physical existence. You come, you're born, you die, that's it, right? And a lot of people will maybe have some sort of religious messaging infused in their life, but there's not really, in most cases, a deep understanding infused about our experience actually being spiritual or multidimensional in a way that's very immaterial that can't be touched or cross-sectioned. So I think part of the reason things like aliens, UFOs become that access point for a lot of people is because it's something that you can study. Many people have had experiences and it goes beyond the scope of what we are taught exists in reality. So I think it gives us that kind of little crack to be like, wait, if this is real, then whoa, whoa, whoa. So it kind of gives us almost that plants that seed to move into or through cognitive dissonance in a way that eventually leads to other things. And I would say that as it relates to the UFO alien thing, the reason it's not a rabbit hole that often ends up being fruitful is that it's not a solution. It really just is evidence that there is a spiritual dimension or another dimension that we're not, for the most part, able to experience 24 hours a day, or in some cases, for some people, ever. And I think this is where on this show, we've talked a little bit about how the brain is ultimately a reducing valve and can filter out a lot of what exists in our more immaterial reality, and that some of us have more of an opening to that, and then some of us are very close to that. 
I think when we look at this idea of purpose being the guiding principle to going into these rabbit holes, I think it just reaffirms why it's important to have that front and center. And I think along with that, having some sort of emotional work done, and I know you explained that you did a lot of self-work leading up to this. I think sometimes people, they get excited about rabbit holes because it gives them some sense of escape from the mundane nature of their reality. And they're, if they're so uncomfortable in their physical life, it's like, oh, well, what if? And it's fun to play in the what ifs. I just want to reemphasize to people listening, it's incredibly important to have done some emotional work on yourself before you go into some of these rabbit holes because, of course, your own emotional trauma and biases will put some blinders on and they'll make you see things in a distorted way. But also... There, there's some danger involved in, in opening yourself up to these spiritual realms. And I want to just kind of go back and speak into something real quick about how in, you know, and I, my daughter's grandmother is a Buddhist monk and had been for like 42 years, like shaved head, Zazen meditation leader. Like I, I, I've been around that for a lot of my life. And, you know, this idea of fully emptying yourself from a christian perspective it's exactly what you don't want to do because when you empty yourself that's when spirits are like sweet open vessel so i just want to kind of frame up for a moment here that that's one of the reasons why the bible encourages us not to empty out the self instead to like infill with the holy spirit because you don't want there to be any space for a spirit to be like, sweet, opening, let me see if I can get their attention. So this isn't to say that that is the experience that you had specifically, but I think to those people listening, that is why things like that are can be dangerous. Like if you are just emptying out yourself and there is this curiosity of like, ooh, cool, I want to have an experience like that, a lot of people can welcome in some very dark spiritual experiences and allow themselves to be attached to spirits and entities that trust me when I say you do not want to go there. So have you had any experience with that kind of, I don't know, knowing people that have gone in with this kind of curious explorative heart and then had pretty dark spiritual attack happen to them because of that openness? Absolutely. It's a really important subject. So, you know, I have, I've, have had friends who got stuck in the whole channeling rabbit hole uh, which is so, it's so deeply misleading. I think, you know, I, I find it really kind of heavy that there's so many people still stuck in that space. I'll say that um, before I had proper techniques, there were even things that happened to me that weren't good. Um, and I think it's, it is, it's true that it's really important to clarify what it means for the individual to, you know, what, what's being emptied, what is not like all of that is super, super important. So I'll say that for me, uh, the techniques that ended up being of service to me were, uh, ancient Taoist techniques that I, I think have been modernized by teachers like, um, Luhan Matus, who's someone that I've sort of benefited greatly from his teachings, but it has to do really with, uh, emptying yourself of social engineering of learning how to find social engineering in your physiology inside your body um which can you know luhan talks about these as knowings and doings and that uh essentially you know when you get too much certainty you form in your body something that you could call knowings 
And if you become attached to those, those knowings become doings. And then, then all of a sudden you have something operating inside of you that is not you. And that can be a really, really dangerous thing. And I think this kind of social engineering is everywhere right now. We're all saturated by it. So I think it takes constant work to, um, you know, to remove that influence from yourself. So for me, uh, the techniques had to do with using your eyes to look inside yourself so gently that anything that isn't you just begins to soften. And so it was about, um, yeah, it was really about finding the social engineering in myself and finding these knowings and doings and being like, I don't know that. And I don't want to do that. And sometimes it really is a nervous system thing where you notice like you're clenching a certain muscle that's tied to a certain belief. And you can find that belief in your actual, your physiology and you can let it go. And so I think there is some alignment there, especially in terms of what you're saying, like you want to be welcoming in, uh, you know, if you're coming from that Christian perspective, you want to be welcoming in the Holy Spirit. So that would avail you to the question, like what's in the way? What is in the way initially that you aren't doing that in your normal life? And I would say things that aren't you are in the way. That we're filled with things that are not us that we need to become hyper aware of. And I think that's probably where like what we're talking about here, like it lines up that um, that that's constant work. That's constant work. I'm constantly finding knowings and doings in me that I'm like, oh man, that got installed. I don't know. I have no idea when or that got installed in childhood or that's something I integrated uh, as a means of dealing with stress that was like totally, in, it just it became an inappropriate tool. So, uh, you know, it's a really big subject. And I think there's, there is a great danger in emptying yourself in that way and becoming available to influences because absolutely we live in a multidimensional space where, uh, you know, it is very beneficial for certain sort of entities or beings to use our vehicle that is physically on the earth, which is something that to my understanding is sought out by non-physical entities and beings. They want access to the earth plane. And if you make yourself that access, then they'll take that access. Uh, it's important information. One of the verses that I think perfectly describes what we were just talking about is Romans 12 too. And all the work that I do in Break Method, I think is really centered around this idea which is that you shouldn't conform to the pattern of the world, but you have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I think a lot of times, myself included, I think the audience knows I was raised Jewish in Manhattan, like last person that should ever believe in Jesus, um, yet I do. So I think when I look at things like that, sometimes when you're programmed to believe like I was, that Christians are all completely nuts and that believing in Jesus is like believing in Santa Claus, Sometimes we miss that there can be these really deep yet simple truths in the Bible because I think at least like the way I was programmed, I was just expecting something very different than that. I was expecting like only dogmatic, fear-based things that I've been programmed to believe. So, of course, pleasantly surprised when I went in to find that it's like one of the most deep philosophical books ever, right? Like there's... I believe that God is prescriptive to a T to every issue that we could ever possibly have in our life. Somehow, like, boom, there's a line for it there. So um, obviously, I think there's also a lot of additional deception and things that happen politically with power groups to potentially shift some of the information and not make it as it 
might have originally been. So I'm clear on that part too. But I think certainly with this idea of Romans 12 too, that's really it. Like how are we conforming to the pattern of the world and letting that become the lens of class with which we see and experience all of our reality? And how can we actually instead be renewed in our mind to see things in a different way that's, in my opinion, not just three-dimensional, right? How can we do that in a way that's not only showing us the vision of the carnal world, but giving, getting to actually walk in the spirit, which I think ultimately is what the Bible calls us to do, is be able to be here, but walk in the spirit rather than only be distracted what's, with what's physically right in front of you. So I think that kind of frames us up to where we're going to go, right? We're, I think at this point, we're all clear, like, there's something spiritual going on. It's certainly a war and we have to understand the battle strategy of the enemy so that we can stop allowing the other right like all of us that are not satanic so whether you're a christian or you're buddhist or whatever you are like all of us that are other i'm gonna say other is just if you don't believe that satanism is the way to go like you're great welcome you're in the other group yet the people that are in this other group are all operating in separation, right? We're all looking at each other like, you're not like me, you're not like me. And like, hello, that's actually, that's it right there. That's how they're doing it. They're getting all the rest of us to be othering each other, not realizing that we actually ultimately have to be the collective to fight against this opposition. Correct? Do you agree with that? Absolutely. It's so important. Like, I'm really passionate about this because I, you know, like, I am not personally Christian, and yet I'm surrounded by Christians, especially having moved, you know, more in the direction of the the right, let's say, from being more left-wing. I now am connected with more people who are passionate Christians, and I see this massive opportunity in, number one, like, people waking up to uh, the practicality of Christianity in a way that it definitely was subverted. Like, you know, it really, really the effectiveness of the Christian religion was targeted and subverted. So it's beautiful to see this, this Christian awakening that's going on that is extremely practical. And at the same time, I think there's a huge opportunity in um, Christianity utilizing free thought to work with non-Christians to fight back. And I really think that free thought is the bridge here because there's a lot, there's a lot we can do. Now, you have a lot of the non-Christians who in this other group who have been co-opted by the New Age PSYOP, and that is a particularly sneaky, sneaky PSYOP. I will say that it, it was also very effective. Um, I would even and, say and that- it has very tangible roots to the CIA, like has always, <laughs> yeah. very easy to document. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and this, it's, it's, it's as easily trackable as like the UFO cover-up. Like it's all right there. It's right there. It interested them greatly to subvert this. And I would even say that there were elements of Buddhism that got caught up in like demons and demonology and stuff like that. There's not, so it's like anytime humans tried to orient themselves spiritually, there was a subversion. Like it's a pretty clear pattern. And so now knowing that again, knowing not just that we're in a war, but this war, like get present in this exact war so that we can respond accordingly. And absolutely, like we have to be able to come together and where is the common ground here so that we can move forward? So for example, children, the war on children, the war on innocence, beautiful, perfect common ground, perfect foundation. You don't need to be of any specific religion. As long as you're not satanic, you probably get that we shouldn't be waging a war on children or innocence in general. So there's 
huge foundations like this that we can move forward together on that I think there's there's a lot of work to be done. You know, it's uh, the the attack on innocence has become so deeply normalized in our culture. I'm literally like in the past month, I have actually had to fight back in my local community against things that were corrupting my children, like overt sexuality put in public places. A number of different instances uh, this has occurred where uh, that's because of this normalization factor. And so it's important to distinguish between the group of actual overt Satanists who are of ill will versus the ideologically captured people who are of service to their will but aren't aware of it. And that's where there's there's really deep, difficult work to be done in confronting people who are ideologically captured but are not bad people and they're not Satanists. And I think that's where another place where there's, there's lots of work to do to help guide people uh, to a sense of accountability and self-determination that would stop them from being the puppets of this agenda. So one of the things that we talk about pretty frequently is this idea that one of the ways the agenda, whether it's satanic or something else, the agenda gets this group of people that you call ideologically captured to do their will is to essentially, I believe, take advantage of their empathetic or good hearts. So yeah. they're essentially saying, you know, if you don't do this, you're harming whatever this group is. Or if you if you don't do this, like, don't you know that this is insensitive, right? So it's kind of like they're finding a way to poke at their sense of wanting to do what's right or be included or be kind and empathetic. And they're not able to see because of that what's behind it like a Trojan horse, right? There's kind of this this facade on the outside of like, you're being a good person, you're doing the right thing, you're supporting these groups. And then really, obviously, there's an agenda on the inside. What is it about this group of people that makes it so hard for them to see kind of practically? And I, I, what comes to mind is you'll, you'll see those people kind of doing those interviews on the side of the street, like just kind of random, like, hey, can I ask you a couple of random questions? And People will be like, yeah, I'm pro-abortion. Yeah, I'm pro, like, oh, what's the harm of seeing, like, a drag, you know, kids seeing a drag show? And then they're like, okay, cool. So now that you said that, can I show you a couple of clips? And they're like, yeah, sure. And then they see them and they're, like, horrified. They're like, did that change your mind? And they're like, yes, that changed my mind. How is it that this disconnect can happen where somebody can kind of ideologically be captured and somehow still avoid it enough to not have to face reality? Like, how how is that – what's the mechanism there and how do we – combat that mechanism where it's like just the idea but they're not actually being faced with the reality and when they are they're like holy bleep you know i think there's there's a couple things going on like number one i think understanding what free thought is is super important like people don't take the time to define like what that means like what does that term even mean because i think it does get tossed around in a way that's kind of loose and maybe not so beneficial but the definition that I found that is very sort of edifying is the idea that we use empiricism and logic and reason to be able to produce thoughts outside of dogma, authority, and tradition. And so empiricism is a really important part of that. 
because empiricism is apparently this logic is racist by the way i don't know if you knew that but logic is racist <laughs> now so yes you might want to reconsider that term and well i'm i'm a i'm a white man there's nothing i can do that isn't racist it's true you should Fair apologize <laughs> right now you're also cis you you know it's true i'm all the bad things you're about um, as bad as it comes i, don't I know. am I am. Oh man, I'm, I'm I'm a danger. I'm a danger to to society, and uh, I'm going to keep being dangerous. I think. <laughs> I like. Um, and I think like empiricism, you know, this it's this notion that some of the most foundational truths we can access come from direct personal experience. That you you experience a truth empirically, and that you can use that as an anchor. Whereas a lot of these people that are ideologically captured, there's nothing in their life experience that has led them to these beliefs. What they have come to believe is entirely based on, uh, you know, um, sociocultural conditioning. And they don't have that foundation to be like, wait a minute, is this true in my life, in the life that I'm living? And I, I think to a great extent, and you know, the internet is a big part of this, we have become so focused on culture that we have been led away from life itself. And like culture is great. And yeah, we're in a culture <coughs> war and we should fight back in the culture war by becoming producers of culture that is uplifting and truthful, fine. But also we need to recognize the difference between culture and life itself. Um, because if we are constantly doing nothing but consuming culture, then to an extent we're not living and we're not accessing empirical truths. And this is something that, you know, uh, I have held on to very closely with this notion of free thought that I can always check in with my direct life experience to know whether I should hold something lightly or whether it has firm foundation in who I am and what I've experienced. And this is something I found very deeply in the ufology community that uh, a lot of people give themselves up to beliefs because it's so thrilling, it's so exciting. But um, none of them have, uh, or a lot of them have not had any direct experiences themselves. And I, I said this when I used to work in that community a lot. Do not believe any of this, especially if you've never seen a craft or a being, then don't, don't believe it. Don't believe it. Like I have personal experiences that I draw upon. I'm still not even certain what they were, but they empirically happened to me. And so I think a lot of these people that are ideologically captured they have availed themselves to a lifestyle that completely lacks free thought. And so they don't have a grounding in empiricism. Uh, the, and the other thing I'll say is that I think that there is an element of the social engineering that's at play that has pushed us towards the left brain very, very aggressively. And your left hemisphere deals with certainty, okay? It wants certainty, it wants repetition. It is your right hemisphere that is able to manage doubt that is able to hold multiple controversial truths that contradict each other. Uh, and so I think there is like a push, there's a bias towards left brain thinking that if you combine that with manipulating someone's natural empathy and you're, you're tugging at their heartstrings, but you're also pushing them towards the left brain, then that person is very, very easily programmable. Uh, and so I see that happening on a very, very large scale. I think it's why even some of the most brilliant minds have been caught up <coughs> in these like massive global psyops that are unfolding right now. We have some of the most educated people because uh, if their heartstrings are plucked and they've been in an educational system that has made them extremely left-brained, 
then they can be manipulated so easily in that way. I think in that same vein, because I've grown up in academia, surrounded by academia and all those types of people, it's like if you put your whole life trajectory in that sort of machine, so to speak, like I, I can think back to being even in third grade and having conversations about what college are you going to go to, right? Like I was raised in Manhattan and Connecticut and like you're thinking about Ivy League schools when you're like nine years old, right? So it's like that machine programming starts so early and then you believe that somehow because only the elite can go there, you are then elite and then anything that those people tell you to believe is what you should believe too so that you can kind of stay in the system. So it really is very much as deep a group thought as I've ever seen, right? I know a lot of times you talk about group thinking in in terms of like a, a race group or religious group. This definitely happens in people that are programmed to believe that they're going to become like the ruling class, so to speak, right? Like the CEOs, the high level executives, the people that go into politics. So I think it becomes this thing where even if, your your empirical experience is like, wait, that doesn't really make any sense. You're like, oh, but this person and this person and this person believe that. So maybe I'm I must be off. I need to I'm I'm better off keeping that down than saying anything about it. And I will say that lately, because I'm I know a lot of these people from my childhood, from the career that I've had working with some of the Hollywood elite. A lot of times, my Instagram posts will get them to DM me, and they're like you know, everything has gone to bleep here. And like, I don't even, I can't talk to anybody. I constantly feel like I'm going to get canceled. I've had to move to this like middle of nowhere place. So while on the outside, we're thinking like all these celebrities are complicit in it. Like, trust me, there's plenty of them that are in hiding that don't know what to do. And I think we somehow discount this sounds very conspiratorial, but I think like in the wake of everything people have been watching with Kanye, I think they potentially face some very severe backlash. So I think while we're like, oh, you guys are all in on it, I think a lot of them are actually afraid for their, not just livelihoods, but lives, should they break away from the group here. And I think it goes back to this idea that in many ways, the elite are the most programmed. It's like once you're in that bloodline or in that sphere, the the consequences for potentially even questioning it can be life-threatening. I mean, have you run into this in your research? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like um, we're blessed because we have the opportunity to think freely. If you're a celebrity who's caught up in that system and that space, producing free thoughts, number one, is going to be difficult. Like to even mm -hmm. produce them based on the level of conditioning that uh, the worst of them experience, I would say. Like when you're going to get into like people who are ritually abused and and put through, uh, you know, they were forced into horrible crimes that were then maybe, you know, put on camera and they were extorted. That's some of the most extreme versions of that. So, uh, you know, you have that or you have people who are exposed to trauma-based mind control and literally have compartmentalized elements of themselves like that they're struggling with and they're fractured. You have those extreme examples where it's like they couldn't produce free thinking if they wanted to. Kathy O'Brien, the MK Ultra uh, whistleblower, she talks about this, about how uh, she was not capable of free thought when she was under these mind control systems and uh, that she believes free thought is one of the foundational things that we're seeking 
because without free thought, then there's no freedom of expression. And then you can't even be a spiritual being because being a spiritual being requires free thought. So I think a lot of these celebrities are stuck in the position of not being able to produce free thoughts. But then the ones that do, it's like you said, they're like, holy shit, what do I do with them now? I have these thoughts that from what I'm being told are thought crimes, or at least in the culture that I live in are thought crimes. And I don't know how to manage them because now I'm facing everyday reality. I'm starting to think freely, but it's dangerous for me to speak out. And like Kanye is a really good example, you know, like Kanye, uh, he posted on Twitter a text message from his trainer that basically threatened to drug him into a state of like permanent sort of zombie land, he called it. And that he would never be able to properly interact with his kids again if he kept speaking out and like talking crazy in public. And uh, his trainer specifically worked with the Canadian military using drugs for mind control purposes. This guy's like literally trained in this. So Kanye is an interesting example because like we're seeing him go off the rails, but like, what are we really seeing here? What is the root of his mental disturbance? How did it, how did he get to that point? Is he just a victim of like violent, violent mind control? And now he's breaking down. I don't know. Maybe either way, he seems like someone who started to produce more and more free thoughts and has struggled to get them out into the limelight. And I'm sure there's tons of celebrities uh, that, that are in that position. I know that um, there's an Instagram account called House and Habit. Oh yeah, we've talked about her on the show. <laughs> yeah, like she talks about this all the time that she constantly has celebrities reaching out to her being like, I can't say anything, but here's what I know. Mm -hmm. I know Dal can never go public with this, but there's this, uh, you know, I think there's a big pattern there. And I wonder, is there a, is there a dam that is going to break? Is there, you know, uh, a series of celebrities or high level people that will, that will come forward more overtly all at once? I don't know, but there's pressure building, I would say. I think this brings in a whole in some ways, almost like salvation aspect of it. So let's say, because I, I know a lot of these celebrities and I agree that a lot of them, not a lot of them, but a, a decent chunk are aware that something is happening and they want to say something, but they believe that they can't for fear of their lives. I've been privy to that information myself. So I think when we look at it from the perspective of like, will that group ever step forward and blow the whistle? I think if we're saying, as I've certainly become very clear on, that to some degree this sort of satanic agenda is very much tied into what is driving the Hollywood machine, be it through ritual abuse or even exposure to satanic ritual at parties, right? We know that I've done a whole expose on this the amount of celebrities that can be overtly tied to Satanism, I mean, it's like 90% or more, right? Yeah, it's ridiculous. And, I, and I'm not just talking about like all the photo shoots where someone has like the hand over the eye. I'm talking about much more overt than that. So yeah. we'll, we'll leave you to dissect that a bit more, but this isn't just something that's kind of like, oh, we're just reading into something. No, like absolutely unequivocally overt Satanism. So this kind of ties in and i think this is kind of a bigger question that i even asked you before we started the show if the people that are operating in the satanic agenda want to speak out i would argue 
based on at least their belief about what's transpiring right now, they don't want to die because do they feel like perhaps their, I don't know, like life is over for them? Like I find it's hard to want to be so on mission that you're willing to put your own life at stake because you know there's something beyond just what we're experiencing. And I wonder if part of the reason that that has not happened and may never happen is because those people are not operating necessarily in a belief system where they're willing to die in the name of something greater for humanity because their belief system allows them to understand what it is that they go to. Do you think that that plays a factor in it? And I guess in tandem with that, from this kind of more satanic perspective, like what do they think happens when you die? I don't know. Maybe that's well, a whole other can of worms. That's <laughs> <laughs> good. It's a nice, massive question. There um, you go. That's I, what did you hear? That's good. Let's do it. Um, well, I think you're right. Like if someone has been raised in this space um, and then they even have an inkling to come forward, yeah, like what morality, what internal structures have they been able to compose to step forward with that kind of integrity? Um, it's a it's a really good question because I think a lot of them, they, they would not have developed the moral fiber, you know, to, to be able to take that kind of risk. Some, let's say, maybe might get called forward, let's say for the children. Let's say there's like a few of them who are like, I just can't handle the child aspect of it. I have to come forward. Maybe that would call some of them to the surface, especially some of them that, end up having kids uh might see that differently a lot um, of the ones that are like the most into it they all have kids though i know and you have like you know Ooh. uh what's you know the, i mean well that that i often see that and i'm like well then i assume those kids are potentially exposed to rituals yeah uh that's where i go personally that's where that's you know i i theorize about that particular conspiracy um were you just gonna say chrissy teigen or were you gonna say somebody else no um well, I mean, Chrissy Teigen's a good example. No, I was going to talk about, um, uh, what's her name? Kanye's ex. Uh, oh, Kim Kardashian. Kim Kardashian is a good example of this. Her response to Balenciaga being a mother, uh, it was hollow. It was a hollow response. So, you know, someone like that, the concern for children is not going to trigger it. This is, this is someone who's deeply, deeply compromised who, to me, I, you know, I see her as like a handler for different people in the celebrity space. That's what she comes across to uh, comes across as me. I think in ter in terms of what these people believe, uh, like happens, you know, it's interesting because on the one hand, a lot of them might be compromised to the extent that they won't go and do the right thing. On the other hand, the most devoted of them, like we talked about at the beginning they believe they're carrying on a bloodline of like Satan's work that has run through their family and that the, the installation of the new world order is the achievement of this dream that is bigger than themselves. And so some of them on that side of it, they do kind of work for something beyond themselves, except that except Satanism that they wouldn't is so, against it. <clears throat> they wouldn't. And, and, and Satanism itself, it requires so much service to self. It becomes, so much about obsessing over yourself and serving yourself so deeply and empowering yourself at the expense of others that really that ends up becoming the focal point. And it's, if we're talking warfare, this is a huge weakness for them because they will turn on each other in a lot of ways, right? They might not all blow the whistle on like the deepest, darkest ritualistic stuff, but they're so self-interested 
that they're not necessarily going to band together. The, the extent to which they band together is just to keep each other's secrets. As soon as it becomes tactically beneficial for them to expose each other, they'll do it. They'll throw each other under the bus right away uh, because that's how their spirituality operates. Um, and so there might also be benefits in terms of, uh, you know, using that to our advantage. The fact that they will, you know, they will uh, sacrifice each other because they're all about the sacrifice of the other and not the self. Uh, in terms of what, what they believe occurs beyond death, um, I think it's a mixed bag. I haven't seen anything that says that they have a consistent series of beliefs in terms of, of what's going on afterlife, like whether they believe in reincarnation or whether they don't. You know, you have interesting examples like, you know, the CCP, I'll say, the Chinese Communist Party, they seem to be a very satanic force on earth to me. The, the atrocities that the CCP has caused on earth, I think that, you know, when you trace communism back and look at like Marx and Lenin, they're overt Satanists. They, they stated their position as Satanists. And you look at the way that Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party progressed in their enslavement of the Chinese people. Well, it's interesting that they targeted the reincarnation system of the Tibetan Buddhists and sought to control it. And literally, you cannot claim a reincarnation in China without the permission of the Chinese Communist Party. They have to approve uh, a, a reincarnation. So that's not to say that reincarnation is, is, is real necessarily. It just shows me, I'm like, do they believe in it enough that they felt threatened by it and that they wanted to control it? I don't know. So <coughs> I, I wonder, I wonder if there is consistent beliefs about the afterlife among these people or not. So I think the reincarnation idea can be, I think it can be something that gives people a feeling of freedom from this life, which I could see would be something that might motivate them to do something in opposition to the CCP that you wouldn't do if you thought that this was like the only life that you had. So I could see that there's that potential for the idea of reincarnation to spark something in someone that is able to motivate them to do something bigger, right? For the collective. Cause like, I'm going to come back again. I'll get another chance. Like maybe I'll, maybe I'll get like extra credit points for doing this. So I think the idea of trying to get it wrangled, so to speak, is probably because that idea can likely be infectious and give people a bit of a drive to move against the system, I would think. And I think the same thing, I mean, in addition Obviously, I don't think we've gone exactly here, although I certainly have on private events that I've done this idea that in the CCP, they're also intentionally imprisoning people to live work and harvest them en masse until they die, which has been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. You know, I think the reason that they targeted the Falun Gong movement there also, again, it's because they were the movement in addition to obviously being very healthy, vital bodies by which to organ harvest it was the fastest growing movement in China and they were at peace and connected to spirit, which is ultimately something you don't want as the CCP because you want your people to be in fear and easily controlled. These, this group was not only healthy and vital and able to be organ harvested, but they also, I think, posed a big threat to the CCP because of their numbers. So, have, I mean, I think if anything to me ever really shout satanism it's definitely the, the live organ harvesting of <laughs> yeah. you know women children men grandpas grandmas yeah. literally just until they die there so those of you that hey maybe you've never heard this before welcome to the modern good uh 
the CCP for a long time has been intentionally imprisoning people and live organ harvest live organ harvesting while they're imprisoned quite literally until they're out of organs and they just die so um if maybe you're the kind of person that's like oh well maybe we're just a little harsh on china everyone's got their own way of doing things right everyone like wants to make excuses for everyone like there's no excuses for what they're doing and there's really no excuses for how in bed joe biden is with them but we'll Um, and a lot of those organs are ending up here the black market that they're creating that's coming here okay that's going into people's bodies you y'all are buying them Uh uh-huh that's freaky and i think yeah like that there's definite satanism there absolutely and i I feel like there's satanism with like all the blood donation too and blood like the selling of blood i think it's weird that people are motivated to go donate their blood and then they in turn sell it like we're giving them stuff from the goodness of our hearts giving them access to all of our DNA, and then they're just out there selling it. Yeah. I, I don't know. That's yep. – I don't like that either. Yep. I, I would agree. Oh, I think, you know, something else that may, it made me think of too, that uh, some of what I've heard is that you have elites using this organ harvesting to constantly give themselves new, fresh organs. Okay? And that gets into, I think, the the sort of transhumanist element of it where some of them behave as if they're terrified of death and they're desperately seeking – technology biotechnology for longevity because they don't want to come to the end of their life so uh, there's something going on there too there's a fear which to me so that i feel like you hit the nail on the head with kind of where i was going with the satanic piece of this i believe that where the satanic agenda and the transhumanist agenda completely collide is this idea that their only way to survive is to merge with technology and essentially skirt let's say god's organic creation process right like let's say i believe they think this is a loophole that somehow either extends their time or extends their time indefinitely which is why i feel like as much as people want to ridicule christianity or be like oh that's just so fear-based and dogmatic i think it's also important as much as we want to understand the satanic agenda's plan and battle strategy you also have to really understand god's battle strategy because the bible makes it very clear like very much to a t what some of the ways this is going to go are and how you can stand in the gaps and intercede and i think to the point that i think we've been making a lot and i think this is something that i just keep harping on at some point and i believe it was pretty shortly after jesus this whole uh, all this information that we're talking about was definitively social engineered and manipulated to get people to focus on all of the wrong parts and weaponize the message to lead hypocritical lives to discipline their kids with the rod right like to just you know even just using a concept like this where it's like so many people that i work with in my work in the mental health space have dealt with christian based discipline and trauma that have have completely altered the way they're able to exist as an adult human being we've got this idea you know spare the rod spoil the child and this idea that for years this like very harsh dogmatic christian corporal punishment has been perpetuated by christians matched with this idea that god says turning away one of his little ones like his kids turning them away from him with your actions you might as well literally want to tie a millstone around your neck and be thrown in the water. So he's like, so to me, it's like 
so much of the Bible itself and the truth there has been weaponized, I think specifically in the Christian community, to get Christians to actually destroy their own progeny. Like, Christians themselves have done, I believe, more to turn their own kids against God than the satanic agenda has. And I feel like that's where I've been really trying to stand in the gap and teach a little bit because I think because I'm an outsider, I can see it. And sometimes when you're raised up in it, you can't see it because it's all you know. But coming from, you know, let's say like very just social Judaism to then getting this experience with critical thinking, I can see all the ways that one of the biggest reasons I think we're in this spot is because Christianity itself has been weaponized by the agenda for people to lose sight of of the battle, lose sight of who they actually are, and, and lose sight of how important it is to actually walk your talk, right? I think a lot of Christians do this very hypocritical thing where they they talk a lot and they think that somehow just because they said that they believe in Jesus that they're saved and that none of their other actions matter. I think it makes it pretty clear in the Bible that it does still matter. And it certainly prolongs the suffering in an experience like this where Christians are just turning a blind eye or, as we mentioned earlier, unwilling to lock arms with people that aren't Christians. Like, this is one of the things that I think is so shocking to me is how many Christians I meet that they're always trying to like support other Christian businesses, only work with Christians. Like that is not in any way, shape or form what the Bible calls you to do. That's just your own fear of having to bump into people that might potentially think differently than you. So I, I think just broad strokes here. Let's not forget how weaponized the Christian, like modern Christian church has become. And I think they've played honestly as large a role in what's unfolding right now as some of the satanic agenda. And I think a lot of times that just gets overlooked because nobody likes to talk about it. But I mean, would you agree that the the way the modern Christian church has actually been spreading its message is equally complicit in this not only destruction of family, but all of the other things that we're seeing unfold in reality? Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, I, it's funny, I, I was recently looking at some statistics showing that attendance in physical churches is declining. And yet I think there are people coming to Christianity in a new way. And it's interesting that you have this, uh, this phenomenon of people uh, coming to Christianity in this new way and, and seeing it with, I would say, more free thinking while the actual physical institutions are being abandoned because they are houses of corruption. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's a good sign, I think, that people are seeking to find their spiritual awakening but are not giving themselves to these physical institutions that have been so corrupt. And I think it's one of the most dangerous kinds of child sacrifice to, to um, you know, for someone to lose their way through a sort of Christian psyop uh, I guess, and to to mislead their children down a really dangerous path that, you know, that endangers their innocence, I think, primarily, you know, I think that's one of the most widespread forms of child sacrifice that's going on. So you can look at like, you know, things like abortion, or you can look at the child sex trafficking, and those are very overt examples. But the ones in which, you know, kids are being led away from their own inner authority, is sacrificing children in a way that's especially dangerous because 
we won't see it until they're dysfunctional adults. And then we have a huge mess to un uh, disentangle. Uh, it's, it's part of the advantage that these Satanists have is that they're so good at long-term thinking. They're so good at saying, if I do this now, in two generations, they'll be in this mess they can't even undo or see. They have that long-term kind of thinking, and we need to start thinking that way. This is one of the reasons I got so deep into research on the family, because it was like the most efficient way to get knowledge and wisdom far into the future is a stable family unit over and over and over again. Nothing contains human wisdom and effectively moves it into the future as well as that. It just doesn't exist. You know, there's so many levels at which knowledge and wisdom are being um, manifested and created within the family and passed on. And we need to start thinking that that Haudenosaunee notion of the seventh generation, living now for the seventh generation, that is the counter response to me. That is warfare. That is, okay, yeah, they've been thinking seven generations ahead this whole time and we weren't aware of it. <coughs> so what can we do right now that not only protects the children right now and stays in alignment, you know, with the spiritual foundations that we are using to move forward into the world. Um, but what can we do now that is actual work, like physical, difficult or mental, difficult work that is four generations from now that has them in mind? And we need to culturally normalize that. As you were saying that, I started to get a pretty clear visual of something that might be problematic to that end. So a lot of the state people operating right now in this moment in the satanic agenda, they're really, their goal, I would say, is to just push as quickly as possible to the singularity, essentially, is like one way to describe it with the, hum the transhumanist agenda. Then on the other side, you've got the Christians basically believing that we're in the end times. So you basically have two groups that are opposing each other that actually don't believe that there is seven generations past this moment. So how do you combat something like that? I think there is a collapse that's unfolding. Like the, there's, the corruption runs so deep that our current institutions do need to fall. And it is going to be chaotic. There's no way out of that. So one of the things that we're doing is bracing for the fall, right? Mm -hmm. Is trying to create forms of stability that soften this inevitable collapse because we're going to have to build new institutions, a new society that is not corrupt from its the depths of its, you know, from its roots. Um, <coughs> and so um, when you look at something like the fact that we are losing our capacity to bear children, that human fertility is plummeting right now. You know, number one, that's a, a, a great thing to focus up on anytime you hear anyone saying that we have an overpopulation problem. Okay, like immediate alarm bells because we're like struggling to make humans. So, uh, you know, there is that struggle to, to, to make humans that's going on right now. We need to get really realistic about this because I, I believe that there will be future generations, but there's going to be way less. There's going to be like, we're not going to be a thriving civilization. Like we're going to be picking up the pieces and rebuilding. And I think that um, it's important to recognize that 
if we're moving to a future where it's going to be harder to produce healthy human beings, it's more of a call to create stable channels of information to crystallize knowledge and wisdom right now. I think, you know, if someone is caught in like an end times kind of madness vibe, I do understand it. I have empathy for that because there is a quickening going on and there is a, an immense kind of pressure on everyone to adapt to the chaos. And it's very difficult to adapt to. Things are changing very quickly and we have not been raised, I think most of us, to adapt effectively to that kind of pressure. And yet that pressure is what I think is pushing a lot of people to learn how. That's just the way it's going. But we need to get more efficient at preserving human knowledge and wisdom because of the coming collapse, because of the struggle to make babies that is coming. Like it's more important now than ever, in my opinion. I absolutely agree. And I think one of the things that I try to instill in people is understanding the difference between panic and preparedness. In your mind, you can be at peace and prepared for what you think is going to happen. And that doesn't mean that you need to essentially weaponize that either into panic that makes you shut down and stop engaging with your life or, you know, go run into the woods and hide. So I think regardless of what you believe can or will happen, you owe it to all of your fellow human beings to stay engaged and embodied in this life and be doing what you can to to at least keep momentum, right? And I think a lot of people want to just be like, oh, well, it's a wrap. I'm going to I'm gonna stop caring because it's only a matter of time. When the reality is, I think, the importance of remembering that we are ultimately on a battlefield and we can't just be like, oh, well, the battle's going to end, so I'm just going to go hang out on the sidelines, right? We want to get to a place where we actually are taking responsibility for our role in the battle itself and being prepared for what could happen, but ultimately still staying engaged in life, right? We should never use it as an excuse or an escape, I think. And I get the temptation, right? Sometimes there are parts of our daily human existence that feel so mundane or painful that we want to escape into something. And it's a very tempting idea to escape into, oh, well, it's almost over. I'm just going to go chill with a blankie. I don't think anything about what we're experiencing right now is calling you to go kick it on the couch and wait it out. You know, I think we're I think we're at a tipping point. Like you said, I think there's some sort of impending doom or chaos and you can fortify yourself and be prepared for how you're going to navigate that both physically and spiritually, but certainly not use that as a way to just check out because I do know a lot of people in the truth seeking movement they can let it make them check out and then they stop engaging with their kids. They stop engaging with their spouse. You know, make truth seeking a fun, enjoyable experience. Don't let it be the the mechanism to make you tap out of life. I don't think that that's at all the purpose. So I wanted to go a little bit more into the occult, but we're starting to run out of time and I want to make sure that we kind of highlight some of the cool stuff that you're doing right now. So maybe we can do a whole separate episode on the occult because I think that's it really is its own whole separate thing. So one of the things that I love that you're doing that's, I think, practical, and I think on the show we do our best to not just be doom and gloom, but we try to focus on things that have solutions and practicality attached to them. 
that's why our tagline is build the world you want to live in don't just complain about it so one of the things that i've seen you doing that i think is something that is something many people can be a part of is the dad army so do you want to just tell us a little bit about what dad army is and how some of our our men that are listeners of the show or husbands of listeners of our show can participate or support organizations like that yeah so the dad army was born out of um actually the the existence of the mom army so uh a woman named seek smith she started the mom army she had been working in sort of child sex trafficking space and had been working with survivors and that her work in that space ended up moving her towards uh, fighting back against the grooming of children and the whole gender ideology issue. And I connected with her through uh, a woman named Pamela Yeager Garfield, who's the truthful therapist. I think she was recently on the show. Yep, so, she was just her episode came out today. So I had her on my podcast, and then you know she connected me to Seek, and we started collaborating. And you know, essentially, it was. You know, I, I felt a lot of passion towards what she was doing because I had just finished. It took me like two years to do this docuseries on the family as a super organism and the war on the family. And I was very much in that space. And so I saw what Seek was doing. And she mentioned that, you know, she was looking to to use the momentum of mom army to to build dad army as well. And so uh, what happened was we. Around the time of Balenciaga. Um, we decided that it was time to start the dad army. And so, uh, you know, Seek put me in touch with the other men that she had around her that seemed like they were a good fit for this. And so we organized a nationwide protest against Balenciaga. I think it was in like 20 cities across the United States. And uh, through that process ended up sort of just orienting ourselves around, you know, what we can do, what the dad army's mission can be. And so I think, you know, mom army is very much focused on the war on children, the war on innocence. Uh, dad army certainly shares that, but I think additionally, we're looking at fighting back on the war on men because men have been very successfully weakened. Uh, they've been taken out of their, their sort of proper role, I would say, like the strengths that men offer society have been removed. Uh, I saw that a lot in the response to, to the pandemic. A lot of men just like not in my community, not standing up for their families, not standing up for their children. So empirically, that was very true for me. And I've also had to undo a lot of social engineering in myself to rediscover masculinity. So Dad Army is about calling men to step up for the children and for the war on innocence and to also uh, help end this war against men and masculinity that's ongoing. So our first campaign is Dad Story Hour, and that's an invitation to have dads just sharing them, reading books to their kids, you know, in response to like Drag Queen Story Hour and all the things that have been going on there. Very, very simply, just sharing your position as a father, reading to your children, being a present, intentional father, and sharing that image with the world, sharing that uh you know, it, it's a message in and of itself because of the war on men that has been ongoing. Like when I was doing my research on the family, I found that, you know, some of the forms of feminism that had been launched had tried to say that uh, women were more important to a child to the extent that it really doesn't matter if the man's missing, that it's really all about the mom and the child connection. And men have been sort of exiled in this way. So dad army is a chance for men to to stand up, to join forces and uh, we have a lot of 
Uh, we have a huge network able to take action like on the ground, like not just protests, but we have a legal team. We have people working in the human trafficking and child sex trafficking space. So we have practical, a practical hands-on network ready to grow our influence. People can find Dad Army on Instagram and uh, give us a follow. And if you're a father, please join the Dad Story Hour campaign. Just a reel or a picture of you reading to your kids and beginning this push to bring fathers back into the cultural story is, is really important. I love that. And I will definitely pass that info on to my dad who, or not my dad, my husband. He's a super dad. Definitely not passing this on to my dad. <laughs> my dad will not participate, but my husband will. So we always end every session with a series of rapid fire questions. So are you, you ready to roll? I'm ready. What surprised you the most over the last three years? Men abusing their children with masks. Oh, that was a good one. Your favorite conspiracy is? The war on consciousness. Ooh, like that one. What's the biggest mistake you've made in your life and how did it impact who you've become? The biggest mistake I made in my life was the believing that I wasn't ready to be a father and letting that echo way too far into into my role as a father and having to undo that uh this idea that, that i wasn't ready it, it initially haunted me and being free of that has made me realize that there's so much that i can give to my children by coming from a stance of self-nourishing belief like belief in myself in my position as a father <coughs> excuse me i'm definitely gonna have her cut out my coughs if you had to place a bet on one aspect of daily or societal life that you think would create the most meaningful ripple what would it be know your own resistance and face it firmly every single day Use something absolutely difficult that you don't want to do to become intimately aware of your resistance and flex that, flex that every day. Like talk to your resistance, take cold showers, do workouts that burn too much, whatever it is for you, but find where your resistance is and learn to confront it and, and use it as a form of resistance training, I guess. You can only raise your kids with one book. That book is... Oh, that's a tough one. Where the wild things are. It's a winner. I like it. Yeah. Simon, it was a pleasure having you on the show. If you want to check out more of what Simon has to offer, you can go to simonessler.com. You can also follow him at Simon underscore Essler 1111. And you can also check out any of his other product offerings or docu-series on our website at mymoderngood.com or busygold.com. Simon, we'd love to have you back on the show to dive into the occult. It was an absolute pleasure to have you and we will see y'all next time. Thanks for checking out this week's episode of The Modern Good. To find out more about Break Method, head to breakmethod.com and to check out my workshops and public speaking schedule, busygold.com. I'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.